If you have your Bibles now, will you open them, please, to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Beginning at verse 12 of chapter 15, this is one of the great, glorious chapters of the New Testament. And actually, of course, the whole theme of the Apostle Paul in this chapter is the resurrection of the body. That's his thesis. Beginning at verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also who are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Our wonderful Lord, how we pray that this morning somehow the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of the awareness and the consciousness of thy presence. How we pray that our minds and hearts will not only be alert and open, but highly sensitized to spiritual impression. And we pray that when we leave this sanctuary this morning, none of us will be quite the same. How we ask that as thy truth comes to us, it shall come to us with great challenge, with irresistible conviction. Though how we ask that those who do not know thee in a vital personal relationship might find this the great tremendous hour when they pass from death unto life and come to the knowledge of God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Make this a wonderful time together because of our consciousness of thy presence in our midst. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Uh, J.B. Hardy, in his intriguing book entitled Countdown, begins with this paragraph. With every soul, every living soul, there comes built in a little time fuse. We all have one. Some fuses burn slowly, then some burn more quickly. Every birth signals the beginning of a countdown without variation that eventually zeroes in on an exit. Yet daily we shrug our indifference. Each night we yawn in God's face, roll over and go to sleep while our fuse is ever burning down. But gnawing in our subconscious mind is the awesome question man forever asks. 
If I should die before I wake, have I a soul that can escape? Life is a dead-end street, and at the very end awaits the inevitable pine box. Let's call it Boxing Day. A fuse is burned out. Someone's zero has arrived. Another one makes his pitiful exit. Is that all there is? What a hope. Or perhaps has something been overlooked? One night in the cold Atlantic, there was a grim countdown and a huge question mark still hangs over the spot where the Titanic sunk. Was it the sinking of the world in metaphor? Many that night reached their death end voluntarily. Earlier, they had scorned the lifeboats that pulled away half empty. And their scorn soon became horror. Is the earth but a larger Titanic? Are we too submitting to a dead end voluntarily? These things we know, we were born, we do exist, we surely die. We walk but a very short path from the crib to the grave. From the unknown alone we enter, and alone back to the unknown we depart. Uh, To each of us there is a fixed and lonely rendezvous with death. Are we trapped? Is there no valid, authentic hope? I confess to you without hesitation, and I believe without the danger of successful contradiction, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives man his only valid hope. If he did literally, physically, bodily rise from the dead, if he made it through the tomb and out the other side in the blazing glory of a resurrection, we have hope. But if he did not, then the Apostle Paul only underscores what our own intelligence tells us. We have no hope. And we are of all men most miserable. Boltman, in his book, Jesus Christ in Mythology, speaks about taking out of the New Testament the myths. And among the myths, he takes out what he calls the myth of the resurrection. And the claim is that Jesus was raised only spiritually, that his body stayed in the grave, since the miracle of a physical resurrection is, by the definition of biology, an impossibility. And thus it is maintained that Jesus continued to live on in the spirit of his disciples who were impregnated with his memory, his example, his teachings. And the disciples were obsessed by the idea of a spiritual presence. And because of that, they invented the stories that are contained in the Gospels. Richard Niebuhr defines Bultmann's concept of myth as the typical expression of the naive mentality that projects internally apprehended meanings upon the screen of the cosmos, quite heedless of the difference between objective and subjective truth. What this means simply is this, that subjective truth does not have to be based on positive, objective, 
verifiable reality. Well, let's get this straight. A spiritual resurrection of Jesus Christ is an absurdity. It's a contradiction. Certainly, the soul of our Lord Jesus Christ was in the place of the dead, but it did not cease to exist. If indeed the perpendicular eye within the man is the soul that never dies, then what we're talking about is the death of the body. And thus it was his body that was brought back to life. And without the bodily resurrection, the whole evangelical testimony is non-existent. Without the bodily resurrection of our Lord, we would never have known that he was the conqueror of death. There would be no event, no historical time-space fact upon which to base our hope and our own subjective experience. You see, only by his resurrection could it be demonstrated that death was conquered. Otherwise, Jesus died like everybody else. And you see, that's the reason that the Apostle Paul says, If Christ be not risen. And I hope I can impress upon you that that if is absolutely the most momentous if in the universe. There is nothing conceivable in the mind of man or in his existence that is as important as this if. Because if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain and the cross lies gaunt and bleak and solitary against an empty, desolate sky. Then there is no bridge across the gulf of death and the story of Christ is one of abysmal failure and defeat and despair. And I remind you that the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over death, his resurrection, is the divine cure for the darkest fears that haunt the human race. His resurrection, you see, is actually the shattering of history by a tremendous creative act of God, the same kind of an act that flung the worlds into space. His resurrection began a whole new era for the universe. His resurrection was not just a personal survival, not just the persistence of personality beyond death. In other words... The death of Jesus was not a phenomenon to be studied by the Psychical Research Society. It was a great, tremendous cosmic victory, which says there is a power at work in the world mightier than all the forces that crucified Jesus Christ, mightier than all of the disintegrations of the body that come with the experience of death. In other words, there's something at work in the world that even contradicts the basic law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Other religious systems believe in immortality. But as the late Swiss theologian Karl Barth said, Christians do not believe in an immortality of a tiny soul which, like a butterfly, flutters above the grave and is still preserved somewhere in order to live on immortally. That's not the Christian's hope. Said the great theologians, the Christians' hope is the resurrection of the body, 
Body in the Bible is quite simply man. Man, moreover, under the sign of sin. And to this man, it is said, thou shalt rise again. Resurrection means not the continuation of life, but life's completion. The apostle says in this great valedictory chapter on the resurrection of the body, we shall all be changed. Which does mean quite different life begins. It means that this corruptible must put on incorruption. It is a manifestation that death is indeed swallowed in victory, that that which is sown in dishonor and weakness will rise again in glory and in power. The Christian's hope does not lead us away from life. It is the conquest of death, not a mere flight into the beyond. The Apostle Paul reasons by the Spirit of God that if Christ be not raised from the dead, we are not raised. One thing I delight in the Scripture is that it is absolutely pragmatic. But the fact of Jesus Christ's resurrection in the past points with unerring certainty to the truth of a resurrection for us in the future. But without that fact, there is no hope for you or for me. The resurrection then, I hope you'll understand it if you never stood it before, is simply the crux of Christianity. As the man says on the television ad, it's the whole thing. Upon the truth of this time, space, historic event, Christianity rises or falls. Everywhere the apostles went, they preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you ask them, how do you know that he's the God-man? How do you know that he's the cosmic God coming into the stream of human history? How do you know that he has the power to offer a catharsis that cleanses men from sin? How do you know that he can offer divine forgiveness? How do you know that death is not the end of life? How do you know that the gift of God is the throbbing, thrilling life of God? How do you know? They would say, because God raised him from the dead on the morning of that third day. The inspired apostle tells us Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then listen, he is not the Savior and he cannot save us. He cannot save anybody. If he were still lying in a tomb, decayed and corrupted, as are the leaders of all other religious systems, without a single exception, then he would merely be another man, the victim of death as all men die. And the gospel would not be the power of God, it would be a delusion. The faith of Christians would be vain. There would be no comfort in sorrow. The future life and all that pertains to it would be dark and uncertain, and the dead would have perished. And the Apostle Paul is absolutely right. He approaches this like a careful lawyer. Believe me, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, we can close our churches because they're built on fog banks instead of the rock of ages. We can silence our preachers because preaching is just ridiculous. We could burn our Bibles, and particularly the New Testament, and really we should never bother with the name of Jesus Christ again because it's not really important. Men have gone to the ends of the earth to preach a risen, living Christ. They have endured hunger, torment, martyrdom, and shame that others might share their joy. Millions have been transformed by this faith and gloried in it. But if he did not rise, it would all be vain. 
Oh, I hope you get it. Everything, literally everything, depends upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is to Christianity what the sun is to our little tiny planet Earth. It's the cornerstone upon which the whole superstructure of revelation rises. The cross without the resurrection means nothing. It means nothing but eternal defeat. Indeed, the reason we know that if any man does the will of this wonderful one, he shall know God. The reason we know that he that hath seen Christ has seen the God in cosmic form. The reason we know that he is the way, the truth, the author of life. That no man can ever find God in a vital personal experience apart from him. The reason that we know that he that believeth on him has the thrilling life of God throbbing in his soul. The reason that we know his shed blood is the only antitoxin to the raging poison of human sin. The reason we know that death has lost its sting and the grave is emptied of its victory. The reason that we know that he has gone to prepare a place for us and that he will come again. The reason that we know that the Spirit of God will one day quicken our mortal bodies. The reason we know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The reason we know these things is because Jesus Christ did as he said he would, literally, physically, bodily rise from the dead on that third day. And so we rejoice and celebrate the fact of an empty tomb and a risen living Christ. You see, Christianity is different from any other religious system. It is absolutely unique because it's not based on philosophy. It's not a philosophic religion. It is a narrative religion based on history, and the supreme fact of that history is the resurrection, an event that happened in the historical context of time and space. As the apostle said to the Greeks on Mars Hill, our Lord Jesus Christ invaded the world to demonstrate that the unknown God is no longer unknown. He was God inhumanated. His birth is history. No one but a fool would ever deny the birth of Jesus Christ. He was born. His life is history. His death is history. His resurrection is a fact of history, without which history doesn't make any sense. The fact of the resurrection may indeed prove extremely difficult to the naturalistic biologist, but to those of us who believe in the God who is there, he has simply acted in the empirical realm, in the flesh and bone of history, in order to save men from both sin and agnosticism. And the birth of the church, for example, cannot be explained without this event. It is the focus for both Christian doctrine and Christian evidence because it enters into both the redemptive provision of God and our confidence in the revelatory, infallible Word of God. All the great religious leaders are dead. They're all dead. All the false messiahs have vanished from history. As the Vancouver engineer G.B. Hardy puts it, there 
is no definition of religion acceptable to everybody, but for our simple purpose, let us define history as the truth that will point the way to the most cherished freedom of all freedoms, freedom from death, or conversely, eternal life. If we stick to our very simple definition of religion, we are not interested at this point or confused by doctrine, dogma, ritual, tradition, or convention. There are but two essential requirements. One, has anybody cheated death and proved it? Number two, is it available to me? And the complete record goes like this. All the great religious leaders are dead. Confucius is dead. Buddha is dead. Mohammed is dead. They are all losers. What could be more stupid and senseless than to follow a loser? Who wants to follow a loser? Mohammedans often harass Christians with the challenge, we have the tomb of our great prophet Mohammed here in Medina. You Christians have nothing. As a matter of fact, we Christians have everything. We have a winner, the only winner. It's intelligent and assuring to follow a winner. For while all other tombs are evidences of death and decay, Christ's tomb alone is the evidence of life. And when you hear the celestial visitants challenge, why seek ye the living among the dead, whether or not you are convinced that the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ is empty or not, he is the only one who makes the claim. His claim is found in Revelation 1.18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. No one ever said that but Jesus Christ. He literally staked his entire reputation as a teacher of truth and the future of the gospel in his church upon the fulfillment of his own personal prediction that he would come out of the grave in a resurrection body. And so you see the integrity of both the gospels and The Savior rests upon the validity of this one single event. The entire validity of Christianity turns upon the fact of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on that third day. And so to hold a meaningful faith apart from historical reasoning is nonsense. It's the fantasy of hallucination. And if, as some theological liberals tell us, the knowledge of the resurrection is supposed to come by intuitive revelation, not by careful historical study, we answer again, nonsense. The beauty of the gospel consists in its openness to the most careful kind of investigation. As one who approached the word of God with, I'm sure, as skeptical a mind as you could ever know, I found the truth verified in the historicity of the story of the gospel as related by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of course, we immediately ask why the apostles pointed to an event, a time-space event, as the central motif of their conviction and preaching. Christ was a public figure, and the resurrection was a public event, and to them it was the decisive proof that the gospel was true. So you see, the gospel is not the concoction of mere human imagination, but it is objectively true. You see, the credibility of any religious claim rests upon the ability to verify the claim. 
And certainly one of the most amazing things that ever came from the lips of Jesus as the apostles and his disciples listened to him was his frequent assertion over and over again, not only that he was going to go to Jerusalem to die at the hands of the religious leaders of Israel, anyone might say that, but that on the third day after his death, he would rise again. Early in his ministry, following the dramatic way he cleansed the temple, our Lord said to the Jews of Jerusalem, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I'll raise it up again. In fact, they never forgot it. During his great ministry in Galilee, after the healing of the demon-possessed man who was both blind and dumb, he made the tremendous affirmation as Jonah was three days and three nights In the heart of the great sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Immediately following Peter's great confession at Caesarea Philippi, when you remember he said, Thou art the Christ, which meant the anointed one, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Son of the living God. We read Jesus began to show his disciples how that on that third day he must be raised up. This prophecy was repeated immediately following the transfiguration preceding Passion Week. Once again, he made the tremendous emphatic announcement that he was going to be raised up. And he said this would take place after his demise at the end of the week. Again, following that memorable evening that we call very reverently the Lord's Supper, when we have our communion service, we identify with that beautiful night He revealed his unwavering faith in this stupendous miracle, speaking of events that were to take place, as he expressed it, after I am raised up. If you or I should say to any group of friends that we expected to die, either by violence or naturally, and at a certain time we would die, and that after three days we would rise again, we would be quietly taken away by our friends and confined to a good institution until our minds became clear and sound again. This would be right, for only a foolish man would go around talking about rising from the dead on the third day. Only a foolish man, unless he knew this was going to take place, and no one in the world has ever known that much about himself except Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mr. R. McShenney Edgar says here is a teacher of religion, and he calmly professes to stake his entire claim upon his ability after having been done to death to rise again from the grave. We may safely assume that there never was before or since such a proposal made to talk of this extraordinary test being invented by mystic students of the prophecies and inserted in the way it was into the gospel narrative is to lay too great a burden upon our credulity. He who was ready to stake everything on his ability to come back from the tomb stands before us as the most original of all teachers, one who shines in his own self-evidencing life. You see, when we consider what Jesus said about the fact that he was going to rise from the dead on the third day, we're faced with the alternatives that if Jesus Christ did not do what he said he would, he is either a paranoid with delusions that were serious 
and was in need of being taken care of, or else he was an imposter guilty of gigantic, monstrous chicanery, or else he was, as he said he was, the Son of God, and he knew that he would rise from the dead on that third day. I think it ought to be very clear that no man should ever stand in a pulpit in a an institution that calls its name by the name of Christ who does not believe in his physical bodily resurrection because without that resurrection, there's no message to preach. Various theories of intentional deception on the part of Jesus or the disciples have been proposed in the past. The old swoon theory was that Jesus never actually died on the cross but survived crucifixion, escaped from the tomb, and then presented himself alive to his followers. Of course, this theory is much more difficult to believe than the plain biblical record. Dr. Pinnock suggests it is past belief how Jesus could survive the crucifixion of six hours and a Roman spear wound and convinced Pilate and his executioners that he was dead. And then in a state of terrible physical pain, he endured the coldness of the tomb for three days, removed a large boulder at the door of the grave, eluded the guard posted at the sepulcher, convinced his disciples that he had a glorious resurrection body, and finally disappeared and died in anonymity. The hypothesis of this sort only emphasizes how far a non-Christian will go to escape the inescapable. H.J. Schoenfield has a new twist. He says this deception was in Jesus' mind when he planned a fake death and conjure up a resurrection. He was to receive a pain-killing drug while on the cross to enable him to survive the ordeal. The whole Passover plot, however, fell through when the unexpected happened. A Roman soldier thrust his spear into Jesus' side, and the conspiracy was foiled because he killed Jesus. What is interesting is that even H.J. Schoenfield says he was dead. According to Roman customs, victims were usually left on the cross until they expired, and often the bodies were allowed to remain afterward as a warning to other offenders. And if they were not already dead, the executioner broke their legs to hasten the end or cripple them should they survive. John states that the soldiers intended to follow this procedure at the crucifixion of Jesus. However, when they came to him, they found that he was already dead. And as a gruesome test and as a matter of full insurance that this was true, they very needlessly plunged a spear into his side. And John tells us this very interesting medical fact. And straightway there came out blood and water. The separation of the dark red corpuscles from the thin whitey serum of the blood indicated that death had previously taken place. Before Pilate released the body to Joseph of Arimathea, he confirmed that Jesus was dead. He accepted the word of the centurion as official certification that the execution had been carried out and completed. A careful consideration of the evidence leaves no room for doubt that Jesus died. The skilled observer, the physical results of the spear thrust, the official pronouncement of the Roman government, the obvious intention of the 
women who came to the tomb to committal by his aristocratic friends remove any possibility of illusion or deceit. But the great important question is what became of his body? It's fascinating that we actually know more about the burial of Jesus Christ than the burial of any other single character in all of ancient history. We know infinitely more about his burial than we do about the burial of any Old Testament character or any king of Babylon or any pharaoh of Egypt or any philosopher of Greece or of any triumphant Caesar. Dr. Smith says we know who took his body from the cross. We know something of the wrappings of the body in spices and burial clothes. We know the very tomb in which his body was placed, the name of the man who owned it. We know even where his tomb was located in a garden, nigh to the place where he was crucified outside the city walls. We know minute details concerning events immediately subsequent to our Lord's entombment, that the stone was rolled against the tomb, that the stone was sealed, and that by the wish of the Jews, that Roman guards were set before the tomb to prevent the body from being stolen. We have four records of this burial of our Lord, all of them in amazing agreement. The record of Matthew, a disciple of Christ who was there when Jesus was crucified. The record of Mark, which some say was written within ten years after our Lord's ascension. The record of Luke, companion of the Apostle Paul and a very accurate and great historian. The record of John, who was the last to leave the cross, and with Peter, the first of the twelve, to behold the empty tomb. If, of course, we do not believe the Gospels are valid historical documents and thus place ourselves outside the whole tendency of contemporary historical scholarship, we cannot say anything about the burial of Jesus because we don't know anything about it. There are two primary testimonies about the death and the burial of our Lord. Many secondary ones, but two primary ones that give us the great, tremendous truth, verifiable truth of his resurrection. First is the fact that that tomb in which Jesus was buried was found on Sunday morning of that week to be empty. And secondly, the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection body appeared to his own disciples. Concerning the first, that empty tomb, the great infidel Schenkel said, it is an indisputable fact that in the early morning of that first day of the week following the crucifixion, the grave of Jesus was found empty. It's still empty. You see, the resurrection could have been easily and conclusively refuted. All the Roman and Jewish authorities had to do was simply produce the body of Jesus. That's all. And we may safely presume that had they been able to do so, they would have successfully disproven the Christian claim and nipped the whole movement in the bud. Because a scarce three months after the crucifixion of our Lord, his disciples were found proclaiming far and wide from one end of the Roman Empire to the other, the tremendous fact of his literal bodily resurrection from the dead, they met with the stiffest, the most vicious kind of opposition. 
But absolutely no one was able to give a lie to their claim that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And the easiest way to have done it would have been to simply produce the body of Jesus. But neither Jewish nor Roman authorities either had any motive for keeping it hidden. Undeniably, it was missing from the tomb in which it had been laid. The Jews concocted a story about the disciples stealing the body, and they told the guards to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. This was, of course, a fantastic lie. Obviously, if the guards were asleep, and that would be a whole Roman What do you call it? A quaternarian? It would be a whole group of Roman soldiers, not just two or three. If they were all asleep, then how did they know what happened? And if their charge could be proven, why were not the disciples immediately seized and interrogated? Further, how could a small body of men get past an entire Roman guard, break open this huge tomb and then carry off the corpse of a full-grown man without having at least one Roman guard wake up. Finally, if, as Matthew says, they were merely creating a rumor to screen the truth that Jesus had risen to cover their own confusion, then immediately, you see, uh, the narrative becomes coherent. This tale about the disciples stealing the body was an obvious fabrication, and It never carried much weight, so it never was repeated. It died a very natural death. Further, hypocrites do not become martyrs. The disciples might have been deluded, but they were not liars. The complete lack of evidence for any alternative leaves the account of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus the only plausible explanation for the absence of his body from the tomb. And so the tomb remains a silent but eloquent witness to the fact of the resurrection, thoroughly demonstrating that the enemies of Jesus were frustrated in any attempt they made to disprove the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. The great Dr. Peter Wolf said, If all the infidels on this side of hell were going into a session for the purpose of exposing and overthrowing the resurrection, I would hurl this empty sepulcher into the midst of their diabolical deliberations, and I know they would be utterly confounded and confused. Of even greater importance to the disciples in the line of evidences for the resurrection is the series of appearances which the risen Christ made to chosen witnesses. Peter declared in Acts 10, verses 40 and 41, Him God raised up on the third day and showed Him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who did eat and drink with Him after He rose from the dead. Paul gives us a list of such appearances in the very chapter we just read. He says, And that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present time, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, and am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the way, Dr. Pinnock, in connection with this, gives us a very interesting little detail. Strictly speaking, 
Our Lord Jesus Christ came first to Mary Magdalene. You recall this is in John 20, verses 11 through 18. But Paul does not wish to include the name of a female in a list which has almost legal force in mind. You see, at that time there was no women's lib. And the fact that John does record it is impressive because it is a detail that no first century male would have invented. Interesting, isn't it? They didn't accept the testimony of women. They were more dependent upon the testimony of men. But John has the courage to record the facts as they were. And then, of course, in so doing, gives symbolic overtones to what he says. And so the appearance to Peter and James individually and separately also goes far to explain their unique authority in the primitive church. The appearance to 500 brethren at once indicates the public nature of the evidence. Many of these believers, Paul knew, because they were still alive at the time of his writing. And this extensive series of appearances to many individuals over a period of several weeks is a phenomenon which calls for an explanation. Jesus evidently left a clear impression upon his disciples that he was neither the ghost of a dead man nor simply a revived corpse. He was alive in a new mode of existence, and he summoned his disciples to proclaim the possibility of such existence for all who believe on his name and then notice there's a fantastic difference between the uh, disciples that we find in the gospel narrative and then those that we see in their triumphant exuberance in the book of Acts. The disciples were intellectually convinced that the gospel was true for one great tremendous reason, and that was that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, I repeat, if that is not true, then there is no reason for the existence of the church. There is no reason for any man to stand behind this desk and preach because there's absolutely nothing to preach about. I'm intrigued by the fact that uh, Jim Whitman was talking to one of our ministers in our city and asked him if he believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he said he did not. And I think if he does not believe in the resurrection, then he doesn't belong in the ministry. And there's really no point in having a church. Paul is right. If Christ be not risen, our faith is vain. We are yet in our sins. We are of all men most miserable. And there's no hope. The conversion of the Apostle Paul from his bitter hostility to the Christian movement in the beginning to his energetic defense of the gospel all around the Mediterranean world is a testimony to the resurrection. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul is the only avowed enemy of Christ to whom Christ made an appearance. Wrote W.D. Hayes, nothing but a sudden, unexpected, objective, irresistible revelation of the resurrected one himself in the majesty of his divine power could convince and convert a man like Saul. It was such an appearance which was given to him. In other words, Paul's entire ministry thereafter is one tremendous, massive testimony to the reality of Christ's resurrection. The evidence for the resurrection can be multiplied. Six different and independent accounts, one in each of the four Gospels, one in the book of Acts, one from the pen of Paul, recount his triumph over death. 
Scores of passages in the remainder of the New Testament speak of the Savior's resurrection with a clarity that tolerates no uncertainty. There are very few events of ancient history better attested with sound evidence than the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is as secure in its place in the annals of history as any other event. The resurrection is the only hypothesis which will make peace with all the facts. Dr. Pinnock says it constitutes excellent motivation for trusting Christ. Its evidence is sufficiently impressive to demand an answer from every non-Christian. The documentary evidence is superb. Few facts enjoy such corroboration. The resurrection stands within the realm of historical factuality. The New Testament knows nothing of a trans-supra or meta-history. God acted in history, and it is in history that we seek him. And so we exultantly acclaim with the Apostle Paul, Now is Christ risen! That's the great, tremendous, overwhelming fact. You know, this kept throbbing in my mind as I was preparing this message. I'm sure I I felt like the great Dr. Chalmers who was preparing his message for Easter Sunday when suddenly it came to his heart as never before that Jesus Christ was alive. And jumping up from his desk, he began to walk up and down the room saying, He is alive! He is alive! He is alive! And it transformed his ministry. He came to his pulpit a new man. Yes, your fuse and mine is burning down. But the now awesome question has a glorious answer. If I should die before I wake, I have a soul that can escape. The pine box is not the end. Life is not a dead end. The resurrection of Jesus Christ for those who trust him tells us that death is not a terminal, but a tunnel. It tells us that it is merely the twilight that closes to open in the eternal dawn. The risen living Christ makes his claim, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And it is because of that single fact that he can give to you and to me the promise, because I live, ye too shall live Also, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me never really dies. He declares, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man ever finds God apart from me. Summarizing his philosophy in death in the afternoon, Hemingway wrote, There is no remedy for anything in life. After he pointed the silver inlaid shotgun at his head and blew his brains out ten years ago, one of his many devotees might well have added grimly, there is not only no remedy for anything in life, there is no remedy for death. For Hemingway died exactly as he lived, without hope. The fuse burned down. The light of hope went out. 
But you see, the biblical revelation shatters this notion of nihilism with these glorious words of Romans 6, 5. For if we have been planted in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It is because he lives that we too shall live also. Let us pray. Our wonderful Lord, how we thank Thee for the record, the time, space, verifiable event of history upon which we can base our faith. How we thank Thee that Thou didst go through the tomb and out the other side in the blazing glory of such a positive, physical, literal resurrection. But now we have hope. And we know that when the sun is ashes and the stars in the night sky have gone out, we have a winner. And we shall but be beginning our eternal life in a redeemed universe with redeemed souls in redeemed bodies forever and forever. And now while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed,